Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Patreon bonus movie review. And this one is a special one because we're able to give it to you for free thanks to our sponsor, Third Wave Water. Now, when they came to us about this product, I was like, this is meant for us. More specifically, this was meant for you, Chris, because you love coffee. Everyone who knows you knows how much you love coffee. You have coffee to go to sleep. It's ridiculous <laughs> how much you have. Yes, that's definitely true. And I'm very specific about my coffee, too. If I'm at home making my own cup and it comes out wrong, I'll throw it out and start over. Yep, you will. <laughs> so this is the perfect product for me to talk about, honestly. Now, third wave water isn't coffee. It's what makes your coffee better. Exactly. So do you ever wonder why sometimes the coffee you make at home doesn't taste as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop? Yeah, I was thinking maybe they had like magic beans. (laughs) No, their secret is that they spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water because that's your basis, right? For a good cup of coffee. And your water, whether it's tap, spring, bottled, is defined by the location of where that water came from. A lot of things can affect that, including minerals. This is why drinking water tastes different in different places. Yeah, I mean, that's why they say in New York, the bagels taste better and the pizza's better. Yes. And if you're a coffee connoisseur, you know that definitely applies to the way your coffee tastes. And here's the problem, though. Most people don't know how to get that right balance. They don't know what's supposed to go into the water or what makes it good. And most of us don't want to deal with that. Exactly. That, too. <laughs> but third wave water has a formula of minerals that can make brewing magic. It's very simple. You just add this packet they give you to a gallon of distilled water, and you brew the coffee. They have other instructions on how you can go about this to really make it perfect. And, of course, you can read about all of that on their website thirdwavewater.com, and also what other people are saying about them. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, the first and second place finisher brewed their coffee with third wave water. And Jason, you and I can attest to this now because we tried it out. They sent us a box of their product, which is individual packets inside of it of the mineral supplement that you add to the water. And I definitely noticed a difference. I thought the coffee tasted much better. Yeah, especially with the coffee you make, because you make them really strong and bitter. And this (laughs) definitely helped it out for me. If you love your coffee, but you don't want to spend the $5 at the coffee store every morning, Third Wave Water is perfect for you. Just 10 cents per cup, and you can duplicate that magic at home. Just go to thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code CLATCH. That's K-L-A-T-C-H for 10% off your first order. Again, that's thirdwavewater.com, promo code CLATCH. Now, Chris, this was our first Patreon movie exclusive. So we were still finding our legs, but I think it turned out really good. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was a perfect place to start off because you and I love to do a lot of research on the inner workings of every movie or if it's a show that we're reviewing. And this one had so many monsters that we could really dive into and talk about. Yeah, we bring you fun information, behind-the-scene things, trivia perhaps that you didn't know about the movie. We spent a lot of time on that, and we look at all the characters, this one including the beasts, and we go through their ratings of what they're given in the Harry Potter books. That's right. So if you really like this episode and you want to join the other Clatchers on the monthly bonus episode and movie reviews, go to patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast and join. We review a new movie every month. Sometimes it's what's new at the theaters right now, whatever's hot. We did A Cure for Wellness. We've done Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 most recently. Yeah, we just released it today, actually. And we cover a variety of genres. So scary, drama, 
fantasy, that's our most prominent, yeah. as you Clatchers will know and love, hopefully. And we also take your requests from Patreon members for what you'd like to see next up on the movie cast. For instance, recently we did a throwback and covered The NeverEnding Story. So much fun. So join us. Come to our Patreon page. Check out the huge library we already have of bonus and movie reviews. And try it for a month. See if you dig it. There's different tiers as well, so there should be something for everyone. Enjoy the show. Exclusive movie review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Yes, finally. I enjoyed going to this. I'll just say right off the bat. This was great. It was wonderful to be back in the Harry Potter world, sort of, if not following that storyline. It's been quite a while. Oh, yeah. We're definitely podheads. Yeah. I don't think that's a term, but it is now. <laughs> we felt like little kids when we went into the movie. I think we talk about this in our bonus cast, but I felt giddy. I felt like uh, I used to when I was a child. There's nothing better for me than reading, watching, especially reviewing straight fantasy stories. Yeah. That's why I always loved Game of Thrones. I'm very excited to be talking about this movie. I guess not everybody, especially the critics, felt the same. IMDb gave it a 7.8, Rotten Tomatoes a 74%, and Metacritic a 66%. Huh, that's awful. So it's really not very good as far as how they rate. Well, I think they forget when Harry Potter came out, the storylines were were good. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're good storylines, especially in the books. The books are amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's not just about the story. It's about the magic. It's about the adventure that the viewer goes on. And I believe wholeheartedly that this movie here takes you on that adventure and does it well. Yes, the experience was definitely amazing. The acting was incredible. We'll talk about that. The visuals were stunning. I agree that they stumbled a bit on certain plot points, especially in the middle of the movie. It was as though they lost their focus. And I think that's a product if you read about it. This was originally intended to be three films. A trilogy, but as of this October, it was confirmed that it's going to be a five-part movie series, which Rowling will write all of. I think she was trying to plant too many seeds in this first movie for later storytelling. Mm-hmm. So it felt a little disjointed, like we were following one story in the beginning with Newt and his beasts. Then all of a sudden, midway through, there was the story of the bare bones, their child credence how he was an obscurial, how the dark magic got out, how it killed Henry Shaw. And that seemed really out of left field with Graves chasing them down. And also they wrapped that up pretty quickly and tried to tie Newt into that, which felt a little bit rough. But I think that if it pays off in the later movies, it's always difficult to start that out in movie one. And considering everything they had to do, I thought the stumbling wasn't too bad. 
Yeah, they definitely had an issue going from Act 2 to Act 3. Mm-hmm. They were like, how are we going to get this to the the culminating point? And also, I agree with you, the, the kid who ends up being the main antagonist. Credence. I didn't care enough about him. Mm-hmm. The scenes that we did have of him, it almost felt like it was more about his mother. Yes. And I didn't even know he was special. I knew he had some kind of power. We started to get that, but I didn't know he was special to the storyline. He was very shoehorned in there. Yeah. And they tried to make it part of the bigger story, which I almost wish they hadn't even done that because it was a completely separate yeah. side story. But And it, why? I don't understand why the main, the director of the police... Percival Graves. Why he was even talking to him in the beginning. Like, did he know that he was special? Yeah, it seemed like he had found that out, but we don't really know the backstory on that. It, that was all very rushed. And um, the more you read background stuff and you go on the other sites like Pottermore.com, mm-hmm. FantasticBeast.com, they do set you up that Rowling is trying to introduce this whole wizarding in North America It's a whole new place. It's a new type of wizarding practice. You have the Macuso, which is a different thing. We're going to get into all of those. So I see what she was trying to do, but for plot purposes, it was Mm -hmm. a little bit, a little rough to get through. However, I think the positives completely outshone that. I was very excited. We have a lot to talk about. If it's about the experience, they won. And movies are about the experience. Mm. So let's give you the specs first. This was written by J.K. Rowling, obviously, directed by David Yates. It had a budget of $180 million. Their opening weekend, they made $74 million. Gross total, they've made two hundred and one. And counting. So it's just barely broken their budget at this point, but I think movie sales being what they are, mm-hmm. hopefully it will get there. It will, and... All of the things that they'll sell, they'll sell the DVDs, they'll sell it to Netflix, they'll sell figurines, all that stuff that we have in our game room for Harry Potter, they'll have those. And they'll get people interested in the next four movies. Absolutely. We're going to be talking a lot about Eddie Redmayne, the main character who I'm in love with. I could talk for Mm -hmm. days about the different roles that he's played and how amazing I think he is Mm -hmm. as an actor. Just a fun fact that he auditioned for the role of Tom Riddle in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, but was turned down after reading only one line, and that's when they cast Christian Coulson instead. For this movie, though, he was the first and only choice. J.K. Rowling selected him, and he didn't even have to audition. Prior to filming, he was provided with a very detailed backstory. She met exclusively with him. There's actually an interview on fantasticbeast.com about his prep work and all of the the back stuff that she gave him so he could adequately be in this role. I do love this actor. I mean, he has been in a lot of roles as of late, Mm. especially. We know him from Theory of Everything. Yes. The Danish Girl, Les Miserables, and so many others. He's a good actor. I don't know for a fact if he is a um, method actor or not, but it seems like he might be. Yeah, when you read about how he prepares for these things, it definitely sounds like that. And you can look up the interview with him on Pottermore.com. He talks about how he even did this research where he spent time taking a tracking course for a day with a man who taught him how to live in the wild and how you would need to walk 
so that he could study the way that Newt moves because mm-hmm. if you're tracking a beast in the wild, you need to remain absolutely silent, put your weight on one foot, and then sort of hover over the other so you don't touch the ground. It's very delicate. And that's why he looks like he's walking a bit duck-footed in yeah. the movie. And everything down to his two short pants, his tight jacket is supposed to make him look compact. It's just brilliantly developed how they thought about all this. He's won a few awards. He's won the Academy Awards for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, The Theory of Everything, and Golden Globes for The Theory of Everything as well, and a bunch of other ones, BAFTA, Australian films he was nominated. He's definitely on the way up as far as his career is concerned, and now we know that he's got four more of these movies. They're going to be making a lot of money. And we will get into all the characters and the actors in a moment. We just have a couple more fun facts for you. A couple more with Eddie Redmayne. Uh, he's colorblind. Is you know he that? really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. He was asked to audition for the role of Kylo Ren in Star Wars, The Force Awakens, in 2015. Mm. He revealed that his audition was horrible, so he didn't make it on that one. I heard some rumors that he might have intentionally blown it, so he was available to do Fantastic Beasts. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, he would just not take it. You know? I, yeah, I don't know. He has a shy demeanor in the way he acts, but also when you see him, we watched him in the Inside the Actors Studio, I believe. He's very shy there, too. Yeah. So I think he's just an all-around shy person. But there's such nuance to the way that he does that. In Theory of Everything, where he played Stephen Hawking, it was just such a different feeling to it than, say, this role. In both mm-hmm. roles, he is a little bit of the eccentric sort of internal within himself, but he brings to the character these subtleties that really make it come to life. I believed that he was a magician on the outskirts who was really passionate about these beasts and that was sort of his thing and nobody really understood it. It almost reminded me in a different way of Ron's father, Mr. Weasley, and how into all of the muggle artifacts he is and he's obsessed with them and nobody really understands. Another fun fact, when Kowalski is showing the bank manager his plans for his bakery, there's a quick glimpse, and you can see the name of the bakery on the plans is J.K. Rowling. Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. She has cornered the world. Like, she has the world by the balls. She's just brilliant. If you go on to, we'll talk about this more later, Pottermore.com, you get so much richness, so much background in her movies, in her books, But then she also has this website where she has built even more information that just brings this whole world to life. You would swear that it actually exists somewhere for the amount that she knows in her head and can envision how everything goes. You know, there's an interview with her and you can see her passion in this movie and in this world, we'll say, because she's so excited. She was saying that this is a whole nother view on the Wizarding World, it's, mm. a, it's a, and she's really excited and ecstatic to write about this and, and to sculpt this world. So I think she refound her passion. She might have been burnt out. I mean, I mean, I'm kind of assuming, but I'm sure she was burnt out on Harry Potter for a while. Well, yeah, and she did say she always had ideas for how the Wizarding World would be different in North America, but I'm not sure how much of that she had actually developed while doing Harry Potter. So this is like reopening. Because, yes, it's still in the same vein. You have a lot of the foundation built for what people know about magic and the wizarding world. But everything's new now. 
And you can see the Congress is different. The way they practice magic is different. So she's able to dive back into the creative juices oh, there. Definitely. Do you know if she's going to write novels or it's just book, uh, movies? I know that there are books, Magic in North America, I think is what they're called. Right now, it's only available as stories on Pottermore.com. Okay. I don't know if she'll actually release them as books. I hope so. It's in her best interest. But it's, it looks like when they show you the visual on her website, one book that has several stories within it. So let's talk about this movie, Fantastic Beast. We're just going to give you a little bit of background information, and then we'll get into our characters. So that you have a time frame, this movie is supposed to take place about 60 years before Harry Potter was born and about 70 before he started attending Hogwarts. Within the Harry Potter universe, Newt Scamander's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was first published in 1927 and became a massive bestseller, as well as an approved textbook at Hogwarts. By the mid-1990s, when the Harry Potter series is set, it was in its 52nd edition. Scamander also has the distinct honor of having his own chocolate frog card. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I love that when they started getting into these extras after the Harry Potter books were coming out and they were releasing, there was a set where you could buy three of the textbooks that you would get if you were a student at Hogwarts. And one of them, you know, they had the Quidditch throughout the ages. One of them was Fantastic Beasts. So we actually owned it, but we never really looked through it that carefully until this movie came out and we started perusing it again. It's really fun to look at the descriptions of all the different beasts. Was he still alive when Harry Potter was alive? Probably not. 70 years, he was already... Yeah, they say the movie takes place 60 years before he was born. And 70 before, so no, he's not alive. Probably not. It is mentioned several times as a school textbook within the Harry Potter universe. I do remember that. So in the book, if you look, Scamander is not actually in the writing, but he did write the introduction to it as a directory of magical creatures. So they're basically coming up with an entirely formulated narrative. It's not like this little side book has a narrative to it. It's just a compendium. Right. While we're talking about Hogwarts and Harry Potter, something I did notice a while back, and every time I watch it, I think about it. The first act of every movie Mm -hmm. is the best part. Hmm. It feels like the most magical and fun part of it. And then when it gets to the storyline, it's still good, but it's not my favorite parts. Right. Well, because you're looking for the fantasy and to see that aspect of it. So a lot of the introduction here, seeing the new world, seeing New York in 1926 and this new character named Newt, this suitcase that he carries and wondering what's inside of it. The only part where they broke that, midway through the movie, when it was stumbling, you did see at one point when they went into the suitcase everything that was inside of there. Yeah, that was And cool. that saved it for me because that it was, was a complete magical journey. So another piece of backstory, the pendant that Graves gives to Credence, I think you remarked upon what that looked like yes. during the movie. It is actually the mark of the Deathly Hallows, so the same pendant that was worn by Xenophilius Lovegood, Luna's father, in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It foreshadows the reveal that you get at the end that Graves is actually Grindelwald in disguise, or Johnny Depp, we should say. And what's important about that, in the Harry Potter world, obviously Grindelwald and Dumbledore are described as both being obsessed with the Deathly Hallows. 
they went on this hunt for them, and eventually he had to fight him. So that will tie back into the larger story later. And that's how Dumbledore got that magic wand, right? The Elder Wand. The Elder Wand. Yeah. That's one of the gripes I always had with Harry Potter is that Dumbledore, even though we know he's a badass wizard, we never really got to see how badass. Hmm. There's that one fight scene he has, but that's pretty much it. I loved that, though. Yeah, he turned the glass into sand. That, that was, was really amazing. cool. But I felt like he was underwhelming in the end of all of it. A lot of fans felt that way, frustrated with how he interacted with Harry, wanting to see more of his power as a wizard. And I, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword because what Rowling was trying to do was make him human enough and relatable enough he struggled with his own problems. Emotionally, he had difficulty what to do with Harry, what was the right thing in his love for him. And even as a wizard, he had a temptation toward the dark side, this hunt that he went on for the Deathly Hallows. He has his whole backstory with his sister and the problems that went on there. So I see what you mean, and I agree. I did want more of that as well, but it was a fine line she was walking, and I don't know how I would have done that differently. Me neither. And apparently, I had just read that she wrote Dumbledore as a gay man. There was a lot of speculation about that throughout the years. I don't, I don't know if she completely... I guess she completely confirmed it eventually? Yes, hmm. on Twitter. Okay. Not that it matters. It didn't really set make his character any different. I just thought it was No, here's fact. what I wonder, though, and I'm glad you brought that up, because it does come out later where throughout the years she has gone back and put facts onto Pottermore.com. In case you were wondering, this is what so-and-so was thinking back then. Mm -hmm. This is what that person's motivation was. This is more about that room that you are wondering on. So the fans have speculated, did she always have this in her head as canon for the world, or does she continue to build it as time goes on and then goes back and says, well, this is the way it was? Now, either way, that doesn't bother me. It's her world, and as a writer, you're constantly building and enhancing your creation. So even if she didn't know that when she started writing Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, book one, I don't think that makes that much of a difference. No. I know that it maybe won't tie back all the way through the first book, but it just keeps growing. And I think that's amazing and imaginative. If you remember that scene when Tina was in the chair above mm -hmm. all that liquid? They were going to execute her. I always wondered, like, why are they executing her that way? And we did, in the beginning, you're like, how is that going to hurt her? Is she just going to drown? Yeah. But then you got to see that it's like some dangerous water. It's almost like acid. Yeah. The form of execution Tina was about to experience by seating and being submerged into the pool of water is based on the execution slash punishment trial of Salem witches during the Salem witch hunts. Hmm. Known as the dunking chair, where the accused witch would sit in a chair that was dunked into water. If the person sank, they were innocent. If the person floated, they were witches. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, and I love that she is bringing that so much into the history of this world. So magic in North America is very much built around what we know about the Salem witch trials and everything that was so common back in this time in the U.S. And how does that tie into what the muggles did or did not know about the actual wizarding community and where their fear came from? But it also keeps true to what we already know about the wizarding world in certain ways. 
um, if you go back to Harry Potter, because they start by taking out her memories from her mind, and we've seen that done before. And they put it in the pool, much like Dumbledore's pensive. Right. So she's able to see these positive memories that she wants to chase and go after. So she actually sits and is being sunk willingly ah. because she wants to be submerged into the memories, not realizing or not even caring at that point what's going to happen to her. So it ties it all in beautifully, I think, and it's very dark at the same time. We don't see any similar form of execution being performed within the British world of no. wizarding, at least what we know of. Yeah, there's. we learn that there's different kinds of magic, there's different kinds of wizards and beliefs in the American world. Yes, just one more background piece. I know this is a lot of information, but for me, it really helps me to understand what was happening in the movie better and a lot of what I was questioning. Ah, I think this is fun. And one of the things is the magical law that Newt, Queenie, and Tina are alluding to. At some point during the movie, they talk about the prohibiting of fraternizing between a magical person and a nomad. Yeah. Or a muggle, as we kind of know them. No magic is clever, too, though. I, I like, like that, that one. Uh, we'll get into it later, but I didn't like a lot of her North American verbiage. But no magic, I like that. It rubbed me the wrong way at first because it seemed a little too hip and slangy. Oh, yeah? Not like the older terminology we're used to. But then I thought about the fact that this is North America. and Maybe that's more fitting. Uh, but most of their other terminology is not that way, so it felt a little confused. But yes, anyway, this law that they're talking about is called Rappaport's Law, named after Emily Rappaport, the 15th president of Macusa. According to Rowling, the law was enacted in 1790 as a result of the breach of international statute of secrecy due to indiscretions between Dorcas Twelve Trees... Dorcas. <laughs> Who was the daughter of Aristotle Twelve Trees, the American Magical Secretary of Treasury at the time, and Bartholomew Barebone, a nomad and a scourer descendant. I'm not sure what that means, but if you recognize the name Barebone, and we'll talk about characters in a minute, that is the last name of Mary Lou, the woman that we see the adopted mother of the children of the second oh, Salemers, right. her last name is Barebone. So she is a descendant of these nomadges. So the daughter of a prominent person within Macusa had a relationship with a nomad, Barebone um, person, and it created a lot of problems. Over time, the law came to be heavily criticized due to its intense segregation and punishment inflicted upon violators. In addition to the non fraternizing clause. Wands carried by foreign wizards had to be registered. You see this from Newt's first visit there. Students at Ilvermoni, which is the U.S. school, we'll talk about that too, must surrender their wands at school before leaving for the holidays. So they also have these other rules that we don't see in Hogwarts. And well, you're not allowed to use magic. Right, but they don't have to surrender their wands before leaving. Yeah, that's a little strict. Students here do have to do that. So there's a whole different set of rules, and Newt exposes us to that because he has to get used to them when he comes. Oh, yeah. Speaking about that, let's get into our characters. There are quite a few that we have to talk about. We're going to talk about both characters and beasts because I consider the beasts to be 
characters within the story. Of course. And then we'll get into our plot line. It's the best part of Harry Potter when we saw one of my favorite characters, Hagrid. He was all about the beasts. Mm. That was his job, right? Yes. So whenever he had a dragon, a baby dragon, or he had the hippogriff and the big spider. The acromantula, yep. Yeah, so those were one of my favorite parts of Harry Potter. And now we have fantastic beasts and where to find them, a whole thing about the animals. Yeah, and they only get into even some of the ones that are listed in the book. But you're right, between our exposure with Hagrid and now this, it's a very magical part of it that is fun to learn more about. So our first character, obviously, is Newt Scamander, played by Eddie Redmayne. We spoke about it. He is our main character. He is what's called a magizoologist. He has been traveling the world in order to find and document magical creatures, hoping to educate the wizarding world on their importance and the need to protect them. He's an outsider, a bit awkward, more comfortable with his creatures than with wizards, similar to Hagrid in certain ways. And information from the book tells us that his full name is Newton Artemis Fidos Commander. Born in 1987, interested in fabulous beasts, he was encouraged by his mother, who was a breeder of fancy hippogriffs. So speaking of that, that's fun. Upon graduating from Hogwarts, he joined the Ministry of Magic in the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. He was rapidly promoted through the Beast Division due to his prodigious knowledge and work with the Dragon Research Bureau, which led him to many trips abroad where he collected information for his books. He won Order of Merlin second class in 1979 and is now retired and living in Dorset with his wife, Porpentina. So, Fantastic Beasts actually gave us a bit of a spoiler a long time ago that he will eventually wind up with this woman, Tina. Ah. Although that's no big surprise by the end of the movie. Speaking of Tina... Porpentina Goldstein, played by Catherine Waterston, is a Makusa Auror. She's smart, determined witch, lives in New York, works for Makusa. She was once an Auror, but then she was demoted to a desk job for overstepping, and she is now trying to regain status as an investigator. Mm. She lives with her younger sister, Queenie. So that's something we had to see unfold. We saw her kind of checking him, checking Newt out in the beginning, like, what is he doing? She could tell that he was magical. And then we realize when she takes him in that they're like, what are you doing here? You're not, you're supposed to be a desk. Yeah. And then we did learn why she was demoted eventually. And it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And it's a big deal to be an Auror. So we hear a lot about that from Harry Potter. One of the first that we meet is Mad-Eye Moody. And he's a famous Auror, dark wizard catcher. It inspires a lot of glamour and excitement within the kids. They it's like have the Knights of the Round Table. Yeah, they have this this desire and especially Harry, as we see in later books, his ultimate aspiration is to become an Auror once he leaves Hogwarts. But that requires very good grades on their OWLs and their newts and training. We never actually got to learn about what does an Auror do day to day. So we're getting a little bit of that inside look, at least within Macusa or the North American world, the Congress, what it's like. But yeah, as you said, Tina has been downgraded to this desk job now, and she's really looking for that thing that will get her back in the good graces, but she keeps fumbling her shot. Nobody's listening to her. She keeps coming in at the wrong times. Yes, totally. (laughs) 
You also mentioned that she lives with her younger sister, Queenie, who's played by Alison Sudol. She was fun. She was a fun character. She was really great at this role. She's supposed to be a legilimens or someone who can read minds. That's right. She's the vivacious, somewhat quirky younger sister. She also works at a menial desk job at Macusa. She's free-spirited and good-hearted, and she immediately takes a liking to Jacob Kowalski. Before we get to Jacob, I wanted to talk about Queenie. Her character, I think, held a lot of weight in this storyline. She was definitely one of the anchors that grounded a lot of the storyline. Yes. And my favorite part was her cooking. I just, I wish we could cook like that. We can just have things be made that fast with a wave of a wand. I think my diet would be better. Wasn't it amazing to see she was chopping things in the air, then they were cooking? Yeah. Mid-air, the plates were coming out. It's amazing. Oh, God, setting the table. It looked incredible. I think you're right. She brought some heart and soul into this. She also tied Jacob very well back into the story Mm -hmm. because he's this nomad. We can't really figure out his place. Tina doesn't like him at all. Newt is just bothered by him in the beginning, and he sort of begrudgingly takes him in as time goes on. But the minute that Queenie meets him, she likes him. She thinks he's great. She sees something in him, not even despite the fact that he's a nomad, but maybe because of it. We get the idea that she is preferential towards nomad people. Let's talk about Jacob Kowalski, played by Dan Folger. He's a nomad. He works in a cannery, but dreams of becoming a baker. Resigned to his fate when a chance meeting with Newt sweeps him up into the magical world. Hmm. He was definitely the comic relief that we needed in the show. And I love his characters. There is a movie that I don't think a lot of people liked. was called Balls of Fury in 2007. Mm -hmm. I thought it was hilarious. He was funny in it. Had Christopher Walken. And you know his voice from Horton Hears a Who and Kung Fu Panda. The thing is, as many roles as he's been in, I don't know that he's truly gotten the chance to shine until I saw him in this movie. I was seeing him in a whole different light. He played such the perfect nomad character. He was completely ignorant of this world until it's thrust upon him, but he's open to it from moment one. Yes. He has no problem believing in it as amazing and fantastic as it is. He wants to know more. Even when it frustrates him, he wants to be a part of it. He shows this feeling that I believe a lot of muggle people would have in having this fascination and a desire to know about a magical world, something much better that exists out there just beyond the veil that we can't see. Perhaps you see the attitude of wizards through Newt. They lose a certain degree of that after time. You know, it just starts to become normal for them. But if we remember when Harry Potter was first exposed to this world and how exciting it was. Oh, yeah. It was great just to see everything unfold for the first time. And so we get that view through Jacob. Absolutely. And I loved how curious he was and how inspired he was from the magic. And I think I'd like to believe that that would be me as well. Yeah. And not even just the magic. We also see that he is down on his luck in real life. Nobody will give him a chance. He works in a cannery, which is awful. He knows he can bake well, and he just wants them to give him the opportunity to try. Mm -hmm. But nobody will listen to him. He doesn't have the collateral to get his loan from the bank. 
And the minute Newt bumps into him, horrible things start happening oh, to yeah. him. He's caught up in this sort of bank robbery. <laughs> he gets involved in the unleashing of the beast. He gets bit by one of them, which causes him to get sick. There's all sorts of trouble. And yet he is positive and optimistic and free-spirited the entire time. I love how in the end, he finally gets help from Newt. I was worried that Newt would, like, we want to like Newt. He's a good guy. And I was like, he's just going to let him Shit go Shit on like this that. nomad. <laughs> Do you think, well, that's the end of him? No. They'll, I think there was a again, little right? bit of an indicator in the very last scene where Queenie comes into his bakery. He's not supposed to remember anything, and yet he's baking these things that look like oh, that's right. the magical yes. creature. And when she smiles at him, there's almost a twinkle of recognition. Yeah. So I think he... Even though he is a nomad, they indicated or they hinted throughout the movie that he might be able to sort of see through. So in Percy Jackson, if you watch that, there's people that are not demigods. They're humans, but they can see through the mist is what they call it there. They can see what actually exists. And I get the feeling that Jacob is like that, perhaps. Or he is now. Yeah. Yeah, he's been exposed to it. So there's something different about him. All right, let's go to a darker character. We were introduced to Percival Graves, played by Colin Farrell. He's the director of Magical Security, or MACUSA. He's a high-ranking official who persecutes Newt and discovers the plight of Credence Barebone within our story. What did you think about Colin Farrell in this role? You know, I think in the beginning he did well with it, but he had trouble carrying the weight that that character should have. Yes. And I had trouble relating to his aspirations or even knowing what his aspirations were. And that might have been purposeful, but it didn't result in what they wanted to, Mm. I think. I didn't understand his aspirations till the very end and the quick reveal where I was like, whoa, okay, that's... (laughs) And he was very cold and detached and he was supposed to be to a certain extent... But you also want to kind of relate even to the bad guy, yeah. even to the evil person. So there were parts where we learned about Voldemort when he was younger where we sort of got why he is who he is. And I know you can't get all of that in movie one, but there wasn't even an I love to hate him going on with this character. I just sort of felt detached from him and knew that he was the bad guy. You knew that he was playing with Credence from moment one, and like you said, we didn't really know why. Right. So I didn't think he was terrible, but it maybe wasn't the most spot-on of all the casting. Now we have Mary Lou Barebone, and we already spoke about her briefly, mm. played by Samantha Morton, leader of the Second Salemers. She's a nomad, mm. outspoken leader of the New Salem Philanthropic Society, CSPS, or Second Salemers. She's bent on exterminating all magic, and she enlists the help of her adopted children in her crusade. Those adopted children are more like slave workers. Yes. And she did well in the fact that made the viewers hate her. Yes, and quickly forged that connection that I'm talking about, where even though she's a bad character and we don't like her, we sort of get why she's doing what she's doing, even though we don't know the whole backstory. She is against this magical world. She thinks it's part of her mission to take them down. It feels like... 
a witch hunt crusade mm-hmm. like back in the day, and she's spearheading that because of whatever religious purpose she thinks she has. Right. We do see that religious vein running through. She's adopted mm-hmm. all of these children. She probably thinks she's trying to save them, and yet she physically abuses them, flagellates them, or something of that nature. And they're all very scared of her. Except, it seems, the little girl. So they do make you wonder throughout the story if the powerful child is going to be Credence, the brother, or the younger daughter, which I'm not sure what her name was. Yeah. They kind of flip-flop you. You're right. I thought it was her, too. We're introduced to Credence very early on, who's played by Ezra Miller. He's one of the second Salemer middle child, adopted children of Mary Lou. He's withdrawn, shy, vulnerable. You can see that he's very easily taken in. He's susceptible to the manipulations of graves. And he suffers from this fear of the abuse that he gets at the hand of his mother. It was acted very well by oh, Ezra. Yes. He was weird. He, like, there's something creepy about him. And we know now that he was hiding something very dark inside of him. And we also learned that it's only dark because he was forced to hide it for so long. And he couldn't control it. Once he it has gets no powerful control enough, over right? this force. And this force is more powerful than normal. Yeah, that's a big part of the plot line that was, again, a little bit loosely tied in. It was very interesting. This dark magic is called an obscurial. And this is what happens when a young witch or wizard develops and is forced to keep their magic a secret, it grows into something that's like a dark, parasitical, magical force. It lives within them. It's known as an obscurus. And because they've had to suppress it for so long through psychological, physical abuse, something that they cannot let it out, Mm -hmm. it starts to just eventually break through, becomes out of their control, takes over and does very violent things. And the person themselves, the child, is almost just sort of at the middle of it, like the middle of a maelstrom. And it starts demolishing things, killing people, taking over. And at the same time, it's draining their life force. We find that out through Newt that these children, who are obscurials, very rarely live past, what is it, 10 think he said. I believe so. And he does give us that foreshadowing early on by telling us a story about a young girl on his travels that he met who was an obscurial and how he was able to separate the force from her and contain it. And he keeps it inside of his case. We learn that eventually when Jacob comes across it. he got in trouble for that. Sure, you can't even get close to it. So he has it contained there. Apparently, it's not dangerous when it's separated from the form like that. Right. Because if you let it go, it would just die. It has no more power to feed off of. Right. Why he keeps it in there, I'm still not entirely sure. Because he's a scientist. Yeah, I guess so. And he wants to learn about it, just like he knows all about these beasts that uh, everyone else is afraid of because we don't understand it. So he feels like if he can understand it, Maybe we don't have to fight it and we can fix it. And save these children if you can separate it. What I'm wondering, though, is he pleads with Graves and Mikusa later that it's not dangerous. Right. It couldn't have done this damage because as soon as you let it out, that would be the end of it. And yet, when Kowalski goes near, near it inside of his case, he's so afraid. Get back. Don't go near that thing. It's dangerous. But it's not dangerous. But 
So there, there's something about the rules as to how this works that's confusing, yeah. or maybe he doesn't even know himself. I believe that's what it is. Because it's, it seems to be pretty uncommon. There's two things I wanted to bring up about this. One, you reminded me, because of how much trouble he got into for having this, uh, my first reaction was going to be, wow, they're really making the northern magic head people seem ignorant and kind of uh, very thorny and just like quick to throw down the hammer. Mm -hmm. But then I remembered how the head of Harry Potter's world was. The prime minister of magic. So now I'm thinking J.K. Rowling just doesn't, she does not like authority. That's what I'm starting to believe. Well, she's kind of mimicking reality, right? In that the people that are in government or in charge aren't necessarily always the people in the know or with the final say because within the Harry Potter world, it was really Dumbledore who was able to protect the children who knew what was going on with Voldemort and it was the Minister of Magic and their whole team that didn't want to believe that and so they weren't able to help. Until they saw it. He's back. It's like, no shit, asshole. We've been fighting him the whole movie. So I think in a way, they almost made Macusa seem a little bit more proactive and knowledgeable, but darker. Because when they did get their hands on something they thought was was responsible, their first reaction is kill them. Execute them, imprison this person. It was very strict and very dark. And you know, the head of Macusa, Serafina Pickery, Mm -hmm. played by Carmen Jago, I did not feel much about that character. No. I don't know if we're not supposed to, like, maybe we're not supposed to know much about her yet, but she was not in control, and she didn't seem that knowledgeable or powerful. And she was supposed to look that way, so it was kind of confusing, but like you said, we didn't get much exposure to her. Really, what we were seeing was the extension of her through graves, and right. that's why the whole system almost suffered, because we weren't connected to either of them. Right. We did get an introduction to some of these, in this movie, more minor characters. Like you say, Serafina will probably come in to play a bigger role later. But they didn't get a lot of screen time. There was her. There was Narlac, who was voiced by Ron Perlman. He was yeah. the goblin gangster who owned that nightclub, The Blind Pig. That was Pig. awesome. Ron Perlman is in so many movies. He's awesome. And you said immediately they gave the creature sort of his likeness. His jawbone, the way he speaks. Mm -hmm. You saw Henry Shaw Sr. and Jr. So Sr. was played by John Voight. That was a surprise to me. Hmm. I didn't know that. He is the newspaper owner and father to U.S. Senator Henry Shaw Jr. Jr. is played by Josh Cowdery. He is the senator who is killed by the Obscurial shortly into the movie. Then we have Gellert Grindenwald, played by Johnny Depp, hmm. one of the darkest wizards of all time, besides the one we know of Voldemort. Yeah, yeah, we talked about him, Gellert, and his role in the Harry Potter world, but what do you think about Johnny Depp being cast? Well, at first I was like, oh, but the more I think about it, this feels like his kind of world. And if we get the imaginative Johnny Depp, not the one just picking up a check, mm-hmm. where it feels like lately... I think he might be able to do well. I don't want to get too much off on a tangent because I know we're running long here, but 
I was disappointed in that. As much as I love Johnny Depp, I didn't like him for this because it pulled me out immediately from the storyline, from what I was seeing. It didn't meld nicely into this world. Like Eddie Redmayne fit perfectly in there. And as famous and amazing as he is, he just seamlessly melted into the magic world. Right. Johnny Depp pulled me right out. And I, I don't like that in a character, especially somebody that's as important as Gellert Grindelwald. Mm-hmm. And you know that's going to continue through all of the movies. So I wasn't totally psyched about it. But anyhow, we'll see how that goes <laughs> in the future. We have our next category of characters, so to speak, to talk about. My favorite category. The reason we're spending so much time on this before we get to the plot is this is just as important as what happened narratively the characters and the visuals that we got. Oh, yeah. And the beasts portrayed both of that. They were an important part of our storyline, but visually they were also stunning. They were great to look at. They were funny, scary, magical, powerful, and there was a lot of them. Yeah, they spared no expense with that. And I love the imaginative abilities of J.K. Rowling and the crew that she hired to do these beasts. There wasn't one time where I went, ooh, that looks too computery. Yeah, no. No, it looked great. The like, lighting, the textures, the movements. Yes. Beautifully done. It didn't take me out. It felt like it was part of the world, and it was my favorite parts. From the first time you see it with the insect-like creature that's buzzing around, mm-hmm. it's just this tease this is what you're going to get, and then eventually you get exposure to bigger and better creatures. So we're going to go through them. The Fantastic Beast book also gives a Ministry of Magic classification for each beast based on Xs. You can have one to five Xs for their level of danger, I suppose. Number one, one X is boring. Two Xs... They actually say boring in the book? Yes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, this is what's written and classified by Newt himself. Two X's is harmless or maybe domesticated. Three is a competent wizard should be able to handle it. Four means they are dangerous and it requires a specialist who has knowledge or a skilled wizard to handle them. It's probably dragons, right? Um, You know, they have several dragons listed in the book. The dragons that Harry Potter and his schoolmates had to fight for the goblet in the Goblet of Fire. Yes, they are all in here, and when they go through them one by one, they don't give them separate classifications. Oh, they don't. Okay. They just have the overall dragon category, which is five. Oh, five. X's, and then they say there are ten breeds of dragon producing different kinds of purebreds, and they list them. But I guess each one is considered to be five because there's no subcategories. Now, five, of course, is known wizard killer, impossible to train or domesticate. Now, Ron Weasley's brother was a dragon tamer, a dragon Yeah, wizard. but I guess they say they can never fully be domesticated, and that's why Hagrid couldn't keep his... No, he couldn't, but that just shows you how incredibly dangerous the Goblet of Fire was. Yes. So the Goblet of Fire you wouldn't consider it Olympics because we didn't see any North American schools. So maybe it was more of a tournament of the country, or I guess you would say? Yeah, I, it said some of the main magical schools, but 
Ilhermoni wasn't represented there. No. So you have to wonder if she just hadn't fully developed that yet or if it was all European schools. I think it was all European. It's funny. In the book, there is several mentions to Hagrid and what he would say about these things. So under the category five, you know, they have little scribblings as though Ron, Harry, and Hermione wrote inside of their book. They wrote, known wizard killer or anything Hagrid likes. (laughs) And when they're talking about dragons, they have baby Norbert on there. (laughs) Norbert. So let's talk about some of the beasts. The first one, we're listing them in no particular order here, is called a Nundu. Category five, it's an East African beast, arguably the most dangerous in the world. A gigantic leopard that moves silently and whose breath causes diseases that can wipe out whole villages. It has never been subdued by fewer than 100 skilled wizards working together. No, we didn't see much of him in this one. No. We saw him a little bit. We know he's in the case, right? He he never got out, so I think that's why. That's good. Uh, We forgot to say it's another one of those bigger on the insides. (laughs) Reminded me of Doctor Who. Yes, Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah. This one felt way more magical than the TARDIS, but the TARDIS is supposed to have a never-ending amount of rooms with, like, pools in them and everything we well, just never get to see it seemed like that too not never ending because there were parts where you got up high and you could see almost a ceiling like it was the top of his case yeah it looked like a suitcase way up in the, in the sky but then he had seemingly unlimited habitats one area Inside. was a desert one was a forest region so that they could each live within the kind of environment that they're from which was amazing to me i wish we didn't have to pay for rent we just had a suitcase (laughs) i love he just walks right in it it takes him down the step ladder kind of like going up and down into an attic even though it's below him and he goes down into what's like a little workshop area and it's got his benches and all of his tools and then that opens up into the various environments and it seems like the smaller more approachable environments are close around his workshop and then the bigger and more dangerous along the outskirts so I think the Nundu might come back into play later, given how dangerous it is. And then we have the Niffler, which is a Category 3 beast. Competent wizards should handle. <laughs> it's a British beast. It's fluffy, black, long-snouted. It's a burrowing creature that likes anything glitter. <laughs> anything shiny, I yeah. think, right? It's gentle slash affectionate. can cause destruction to belongings. It lives in lairs and kept by goblins to burrow for treasure. So, well, that makes sense. This this creature we saw a lot of. It, he was the mischievous one. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's a Category 3, he causes some extreme chaos. I mean, he just wreaks havoc. They, they show that he's very quick. He's almost impossible to catch. He just scampers away every time Newt gets near him. Yeah. He goes on top of things, under things. He's knocking shit over. If you want to rob a bank, he is your man. Oh, yeah. He is, in fact, robbing the bank blind here. And whatever kind of ability he has, he's able to, yes, stuff things into a seemingly endless pouch because we see Newt tip him upside down later and just shake Everything. everything out. But he's cute, right? He's cute. He was definitely the funniest beast. He made us laugh out loud. During the movie. Several I think, times. I think the whole movie theater laughed. He could have been an annoying character, but they really did him well. Oh, he's perfect. And Newt has trouble with him. Yeah. 
he's really what starts it all. He's the first one to get out. Yeah. He's the hardest to recapture. We spend a lot of the movie trying to get to him. And he is also what causes Newt to be almost discovered and then discovered mm. quite a few times. He's also the cause of him becoming friends with Jacob. Yes. Now, he, <laughs> I love the way he would look at Newt, kind of like a cat does, like, while it's doing something wrong, he's looking at you like, I know I'm doing this wrong, but I'm making the decision to it's do like it. like our bird. Yeah. I know I'm causing too. trouble. One of my favorites. Well, next you had the Arumpant, category four. It's a large gray African beast of great power. Mistaken for a rhinoceros at a distance, it has a thick hide, a long sharp horn that contains a deadly fluid, which will cause whatever is injected with it to explode. We do see that at one point he puts the fluid into the tree that Jacob's hanging on to and the oh, tree that's explodes. right, yes. So I don't know if you fully catch on to that danger within the movie, but if it would have touched anybody, including Jacob, he would have exploded. And it almost glows the whole part of his nose, it mouth, snout yeah. region. Their horns and tails, the fluid from that, is used in all different potions within the wizarding world. And in fact, different things from each of these creatures can be used. It says that within the book. Mm -hmm. In Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Xenophilius Lovegood was in possession of the horn of an arumpent. We hear him talking about that. He keeps insisting that it comes from a crumplehorned snorkak. But Hermione mentions to her friends to be careful around it because she's not fooled and she knows that it's actually an arumpent horn that can explode. And in fact, in the book, moments later, it does just that. <laughs> this creature was cool. It was enough danger for us to be concerned and afraid of it. But it was also not too over the top where it felt like the there's no way that Newt could ever have handled him. Well, they balanced him by making him almost cute. When he turns his face yeah. to you, you see that he's almost like this creature that just can't control himself. Yeah. He doesn't mean to cause so much damage. He doesn't know his own strength or power. And all he's concerned about is mating. So right. the problem is <laughs> that Jacob gets that scent on him when Newt hands him the bottle uh, that's supposed to attract it. It's like a mate giving off pheromones, and then he just goes crazy trying to chase after him until they get him back. And that scene was really that amazing scene was awesome, yeah. when they're finally sliding across the ice and Newt comes right up behind him with, with the, the, case, the case, and yeah. he just kind of like... Sucks him in. <laughs> yeah. But how did... I was thinking, like, once he falls into the case... If you're thinking, no, this is being very literal, too literal. He falls down. Down the ladder. Yeah, destroys <laughs> everything his in workshop. The workshop. Part. Like, how do you get him back into... I have no idea. I guess the magic of it. Yeah, that's a good question, though. Then we have the Graphorn, which is a Category 4 beast. Hmm. Dangerous, requires specialist knowledge, skilled wizard handle. It's from the mountainous European regions. Large, grayish purple with a humped back, two long, sharp horns, and it walks on four thumbed feet. Hmm. And it's very aggressive. So, again, we didn't really see a lot of this creature, correct? We saw one scene. It was a beautiful scene. They have one of the larger rooms, and it was revealed that Newt had the only breeding pair left in the world. And thanks to his care, they already had one offspring. Okay, that's what they were referencing. That's right. And it seemed like. It was, they weren't that dangerous where they couldn't walk up to it. 
Like they, they seemed kind of almost peaceful. Docile, like they yeah. just wanted to be left alone, basically. That they maybe would be dangerous if you bothered them. Yeah. One cool thing about them is their hides are tougher than a dragon's and can repel most spells. Oh, wow. So it would be difficult to catch them if he did get out. Yeah, luckily these didn't, I guess, they're not as adventurous. They're more docile in those regards. Certain things are probably content to stay within there where they're cared for and they have the environment that they're suited to. As long as they have the food. The next one was possibly my favorite creature. It was the Thunderbird. And the one we met here was named Frank. It's a giant hawk-like bird, a mythical bird that is created and summoned by lightning within Native American folklore. This is actually taken from real mythology. And we see that, in fact, he does bring storms and disappear into storms later on. This is the creature that seems to have spurred, in great part, the journey that Newt is on here because he wants to return him to the wild. That's right. And he's trying to take him back to, I, I don't even think he knows for sure that he's from a place like this, but he thinks it's similar enough that if he releases him into, where was it, Arizona? Arizona, a natural habitat in Arizona. Mm. The, well, I guess Egypt is a desert place, a right? Desert, so there's yeah. parts of Arizona. So he thinks he'd be happy there and he wants to give him that opportunity and... He's just a really amazing... Beautiful Initially, creature. I said he looked almost phoenix-like. That's right. His head, his body, just very, very large. His body was a little hippogriff-ish. Mm-hmm. It was all bird, but very powerful. And he just... He seemed like a... Almost like the hippogriff that it's graceful, and once you finally win their respect and affection, they can be a good ally. Very good ally. Are you kidding me? Dumbledore had an awesome phoenix, but the phoenix was nothing compared to this Thunderbird. Mm. And the Thunderbird saved the day. So. He did. I know we'll get to this later, but that was also the house category, one of the house category options on Pottermore.com that you could get sorted into for Ilvermoni. Okay. So they do a Hogwarts sorting with the houses we know and then an Ilvermoni sorting. And this is one of their options. And it seems like a lot of that pulls from Native American folklore. I wish I got that one. I forgot to mention that we don't have a category on the Thunderbird because it was not actually in the Fantastic Beasts book. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's because it was created later or because it's indigenous to North America. So maybe it wouldn't be in this book. But we're not sure exactly what it would rate. Then we have the billywig, which is three X's. It's an insect native to Australia, half an inch long, vivid sapphire blue, speedy wings attached to the top of the head that rotates. It has a long, thin stinger at the bottom, which causes giddiness and levitation. (laughs) That seems kind of fun. I'd actually like to get stung by that. Why is it three X's? I mean, that's pretty docile and kind of cool, right? Yeah, there's some interesting information about this. It's rarely noticed by muggles because of its speed and often not even by wizards until they've been stung by it. Oh. Those who have been stung suffer giddiness followed by levitation and generations of young Australian witches and wizards have attempted to catch them and provoke them into stinging them so that they can enjoy the side effects. (laughs) But too many stings can cause the victim to hover uncontrollably for days on end. And when there is a severe allergic reaction, permanent floating may ensue. 
Huh. So you really don't want to mess around with that too much. But also what's interesting, dried billywig stings are used in several potions and believed to be a component in the popular sweet fizzing whizbies <laughs> that we saw the kids taking That's at Hogwarts. That's right, yeah. All right, we have a few more creatures. The next is the Demiguise, Category 4. It's from the Far East. Its key aspect is that it's able to make itself invisible when threatened. So it is a peaceful herbivore. It's got large black eyes, and it's ape-like in appearance. When we see it become visible, its body is covered in a fine silvery hair. I They're, remember that creature, yeah. Right, so I think this is a defense mechanism because their pelts are highly valuable. They're sought after so that people can spin them to make invisibility cloaks. Oh, so he was pretty clever. It was a big part of Newt's journey that it would be hard to get him back because they couldn't see him. So sometimes they're nearly impossible to recapture. It also doesn't help that they can see the future, making it very hard to catch. <laughs> it's almost a matter of luck. He had to wait for him to show himself right, and then just get him back. What a, yeah, and I forgot what they said, but basically you had to do something out of the ordinary so that he couldn't see it in Because the he can see the future, you had to think about what you would do and then just sort of try to do something random instead, yeah. do the opposite. Now we have the Akami, which is another 4X beast. It's from the Far East, India. It's plumbed, two-legged, winged creature with a serpentine body and can reach 15 feet. It's aggressive... Its eggshells are made of the purest silver. So that's the one that could, it went into that house and then just got huge. Yes, and they ended up capturing it in the teapot. That's right. Because it expands or contracts to fit whatever space it's in. So if they got him to go after something inside of something small, it would then shrink, which was really amazing, the visuals on that scene. And his eggs are what Newt used to pay Jacob, right? Yes, and that's why they're sought after. If it laid an egg while it was huge, 15 feet, would that be a bigger egg? So 15-foot egg of silver? I assumed so, but it sounds like they have a typical size. It's just that they can expand or contract to fill the space that they're in. But when we see the ones that are inside Newt's case, they seem like somewhere in between, just an average... Snake-like. You know, size, and their, their eggs, their offspring seemed also an average offspring size by the way newt needs to get those locks fixed i was so frustrated the entire movie that the whole premise comes from the fact that the case keeps opening and they keep getting loose and yet he's spending all this time running around chasing after them i kept thinking if he would just fix the effing case (laughs) every time he captures one he could be sure they will stay in there instead of just chasing his tail and we know that you can fix something with a swoop of a wand, it was infuriating. Hermione did it. Yeah, Hermione did it in the first movie. As a, I was so frustrated with that. She was even a real student. Big plot she hole. She picked uh, Harry Potter's glasses. Yes. All right. Two more creatures. The first was the swooping evil. Again, not in the book, so we don't have a rating. But I would assume that this would be a much higher, maybe five star. It's a large butterfly-like creature, a blue and green winged beast that emerges from a small object, possibly a cocoon. We see this come into play in the scene where they are trying to execute Tina. And he has to come and help them. He, he actually comes to their aid in that scene. 
Yeah, no matter how beautiful the swooping evil may look from the outside, Newt warns it has the ability to suck out a person's brains. Oh, boy. Its venom can also be used to rid of bad memories. Okay. Newt's got some bad creatures in there, man. Yeah. But they're not bad. They're just misunderstood. (laughs) Well, speaking of, probably the cutest one. The bow truckle. The one in particular is Pickett. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He's the one that hangs out with Newt. He's from southern Germany. He's a tree guardian. They're small and peaceably shy. Yeah. Those were cute. Those reminded me of Achilles because Achilles, our bird, you used to hear him squawking all the time before we got the new studio. He wants to be on us all the time, and he can get a little snippy if if you're talking too loud and he's trying to sleep on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. He'll, be, he'll like nip at you and be like, shut up. He reminded me. Well, and it looks like a leaf bug, right? In that it appears as though it could be part of a tree and camouflage itself into one. Mm -hmm. But yet again, even though it's not incredibly dangerous, it can hurt you. They've been known to leap down upon a woodcutter or tree surgeon who's attempting to harm their home and gouge at their eyes with long, sharp fingers. Well, you're... So it's the same as a bird. Taking out their home shit. Right. Try to harm them, then they'll come after you. And finally, it wasn't on this list, but we have to talk about the Mertlap, Category 3, which is a rat-like creature. At least that's how it's listed here, although when we see it in the movie... Right, it's more like a porcupine. Found in the coastal areas of Britain. Okay, it has a growth upon its back resembling a sea anemone, so I guess that's what we're seeing that looks porcupine. When pickled and eaten... Mertlap growths promote resistance to curses and jinxes, though an overdose can cause unsightly purple ear hair. (laughs) Well, and we also see that their bite can cause problems in certain circumstances, usually not for wizards, but I guess for nomadges. Well, it usually causes minor rashes, but in rare cases, a severe bite can cause profuse sweating. Mm. You know, another fun fact, the tentacles are also used to make Mertlap essence a home remedy for cuts and abrasions. Oh, I think we've heard them talk about that in Harry Potter. That's right. Fans will remember it's what Hermione gave Harry after his detentions with old Umbridge. Oh, okay. With the, with the hand where it cut yes. his hand. That's right. That's cool. Well, that's all the beasts we'll talk about here. Obviously, there are tons more in the book, but those were the relevant ones to the movie. We had a few terms that maybe we didn't understand right away. We talked about nomad, which is a non-magical person. We also talked about Macusa, the magical congress of the U.S. We talked about an obscurial. And finally, Ilvermoni, which is the name of the American school of witchcraft and wizardry, much like Hogwarts, but for the U.S. The great North American school was founded in the 17th century. It stands at the highest peak of Mount Greylock, where it is concealed from non-magic gaze by a variety of powerful enchantments, which sometimes manifests in a wreath of misty cloud. Oof. And if you want to hear more about Ilvermoni, that's one of the things that J.K. Rowling has on Pottermore.com, more about this school, and I think we will see more of that in future movies also. Now it's time to get into our plot, finally. We're going to go through that, not exactly scene by scene because we've been talking about it, but yes. big chunks. It starts out with... The growing dangers in the wizarding world of 1926 New York. Something mysterious is leaving a path of destruction in the streets, threatening to expose the wizarding community to the Second Salemers, a fanatical faction of nomadges. 
bent on eradicating magical people, and the powerful dark wizard Gellert Grindelwald, after wreaking havoc in Europe, has slipped away nowhere to be found. Unaware of the rising tensions, Newt Scamander arrives in the city, nearing the end of a global excursion to research and rescue magical creatures, some of which are safeguarded in the hidden dimensions of his deceptively nondescript leather case. But potential disaster strikes when unsuspecting nomad Jacob Kowalski inadvertently lets some of Newt's beasts loose in a city already on the edge, a serious breach of the statute of secrecy that former or Tina Goldstein jumps on, seeing her chance to regain her post. So this takes us through the opening scene where we're introduced to New York. We see Newt's commander. We see his case. The beasts are let loose. Mm -hmm. He's after the Niffler initially. That's the only one that's really gotten loose. That's right. He follows it to the bank where it causes total destruction. (laughs) He cannot get it back. It's hiding in the vaults. It's getting all the jewels and the coins. He bumps into Kowalski, and he gets pulled into it. So he transports him inside of the vault. Kowalski gets a look at everything that's happening in the magical world. And on their way out, inadvertently, they switch cases. Yes, yes. So Kowalski gets away before Newt has the chance to obliviate him and erase his memories. And this is where Tina's after him and tries to take him in. This was a well-balanced opening where it gave you magic. It gave you setup. It gave you a little bit of background. It made us like and also feel already for Jacob. You're kind of frustrated with Newt as much as you like him and you're so interested about his story and what's going on with the beast. You just see him causing so many problems. Yes. For this poor Jacob who's just there, he desperately wants to get this loan. He's being ignored and turned down. He's having a hell of a day already. (laughs) And now he's completely sucked into this world and... Initially, Newt just kind of writes him off. He can't keeps transporting him here and there. He's not really explaining totally what's going on. The poor guy just wants to get out of there. But then, in turn, you also start to feel bad for Newt because Tina jumps on this. She takes him down to Macusa. He knows that he's done something wrong, but he also doesn't fully understand the magical world of North America. So he doesn't know their rules. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. Obviously, he's not supposed to be letting beasts loose. But he's kind of confident that he's the only one that can recapture them easily. So if she would just let him go, he would get them back into the case and get it back under control. But she doesn't want to do that. She wants to turn him in for her own benefit. Right. She really doesn't care or understand about the plight that he's going through. She just wants to get her position back as an Auror. That's where we get our first introduction to Graves, the person who's in charge of this. He writes her off, tells her to get back to work at her desk job. She walked in on a very important meeting, one of many walk-ins that she's going to (laughs) have. Yep, with Serafina and seemingly other members of Macusa. So they kick her out. She decides she's just going to try to get Newt and get this situation under control for herself. That's right. So when she goes to find him, the two of them continue to have run-ins. They take an ominous turn when Percival Graves, who we were briefly introduced to, casts his suspicions on both Newt and Tina. So he kind of ties them in together. Newt's problems start to become Tina's problems. That's right. 
they first go to the building and they're just trying to get back Jacob and figure out what's happened to him. Newt goes there separately with intentions on obliviating him and stopping the nightmare. But when he finds him, Tina arrives at the building at the same time and they realize that Jacob has been bitten. Bitten, that's right. So they got to bring him back and get that fixed before they do anything. And Tina says, well, I'm going to take you back to my house and we'll get this figured out. The two of them go with her. And this is when we start to see how well Jacob and Newt play off of each other. I think their dynamic was was pretty seamless. And the the yin to the yang really worked well. Yes. You get this great scene that we already talked about where she introduces them to her sister. (laughs) I love that part. Queenie and Jacob hit it off. They're having dinner. Tina kind of thinks she's turned things around. She puts them to bed in her spare room and brings them hot chocolate. That's and right, yeah. her and her sister are saying, well, they're going to be good now, right? I mean, we gave them hot chocolate. Everything's PC. <laughs> but Newt is... There was definitely some, some laughable parts in there. Yeah, Newt is still determined to sort of get things back on track. So he disappears back into the case and brings Jacob with him. And this is where the magic really starts. This is where we really expose a nomad to the magical world. I mean, he's seen all these things that are going on. He knows it's impossible, but he doesn't have a full grasp on what's happening and how this is even possible. So they go into the case, and I think this was the best part of the entire movie. Absolutely. Where we see all the different environments, all the creatures, this whole world, and you really learn... Newt is not just this bumbling idiot who has set havoc loose on the city and can't control himself. He's a man on a mission. He has this life's journey that he wants to save all of these beasts that are either on the verge of extinction or they're being hunted by other people for their magical properties. He wants to give them a safe haven. Some of them hopefully return back to the wild as he's going to do with the Thunderbird. Right. Some of them just to repopulate like we saw him do with those beasts. And he wants to write this book. He wants so to write a book. So that everyone knows more about these Right, creatures. to educate them because a lot of them, they just want to hunt down and kill because or they they're think just they're dangerous. Of, yeah. um, or they want to take for what they can use from their horns, their tails, what have you. He wants to show that they're not as dangerous as they appear, most of them. They can live alongside them if they could only just understand them better. Of course. Now, he's looking through rose-colored glasses to a certain extent because a lot of the beasts that are in there are potentially very dangerous and not really easy to control. But he's provided them with such a safe place. He has environments for each of them in there, and he's doing a fairly decent job once we see just how many creatures and how difficult it is to care for all of them. Every day he's in there feeding for them, checking up on them. I mean, it's really pretty amazing. And Jacob is just instantaneously taken in. Oh, yeah. And we start to see that Newt needs Jacob and Jacob needs Newt. Mm. Newt doesn't realize how much he needs him until, I think, the third act. But they do cultivate this great relationship that uh, I think we felt and we enjoyed. Well, even at this point, and it's still fairly early in, he sees how at ease Jacob is with the creatures. He's fascinated by them. He's not scared of them the way even a lot of magical people would be. 
witches and wizards immediately running for them from them or assuming they need to be put down. Jacob wants to learn about them. Like you said, he has a curiosity and he wants to help. As soon as Newt shows him how, he starts feeding them, trying to pet them. He's yeah. even going near things that are very that dangerous that right. he doesn't understand, like the obscurial, but he gets his knowledge from Newt. He listens. And at this point, when he starts to say, well, we can't run from these girls, Tina and Queenie, they took us in, they helped us. Hey, they even gave us hot chocolate. Newt explains to them, you don't really understand the full extent of it. They want to take me in. They would wipe your memory so that you wouldn't remember anything of the magical world. And I'm on this quest that I need to finish recapturing all of these beasts so that I can save them and make sure that they're okay. And Jacob agrees. Despite the danger, despite the inconvenience and everything else, he decides to help him. And they're going to go on this journey together. This is where they start to go after the erumpent that's gotten loose <laughs> in Central Park. We talked about the run-in where he starts to go after Jacob because he thinks he wants to meet with him. They're able to get him back into the case just in the nick of time, but when they walk out, they see that Tina, realizing they were gone, yet again <laughs> tried to take them and turn them in, brought the whole suitcase down oh. to Macusa. But they're coming in right at the wrong time again. Again. And now this is where they really start looking at Tina as an enemy as well. That's right. Macusa really turns on all of them, and so they really have no choice but to band together. So you have this unlikely team. Newt, Tina, Queenie, and Jacob are heroes who have to finish recovering all of Newt's missing beasts before they come to harm, and the higher stakes because they're all fugitives, plus the fact that the mission puts them on a collision course with dark forces that could push the wizarding and nomad worlds to the brink of war. That comes into play when we see Henry Jr. killed by the Obscurial, and we start to realize just how dark and dangerous this force is. Serafina then captures the trio, believing them to be the cause of Shaw's death because Newt did have an Obscurial in his case, and she has them locked up, where Graves orders them to be taken to a chamber to be killed. This is when we see that chamber. So luckily they start off with Tina, because I think... They wouldn't have been able to get away if Newt was the first one to go. Mm-hmm. They take her memory out from the wand. Mm. Remember how important that was in Harry Potter. So that was a good callback. And then we see this whole thing play out. And it's memories of her childhood, which I think we're going to get further backstory later on Tina and what her entire life has been like, what's brought her to this point. She seems a bit troubled herself, mm -hmm. a bit of an outsider. She's a little eccentric like Newt. They start to understand each other better, even come to like each other. They're a bit paired off now. You have Newt and Tina first at odds coming mm -hmm. to, to know each other. And then you have Queenie and Jacob who love each other and they bring light to our situation. We do get this very dark moment where you don't know what's going to happen to her. You assume that she's not going to die, but this is an extremely radical form of execution oh, that yeah. we get exposed to very early on. They are only just able to get out of there and with the help of Newt's beasts if they didn't have the swooping evil come in to help them. And this is just another reinforcement that the beasts aren't all bad. They actually assist them in that moment. 
and help Newt and Tina to escape the chamber and also to get out of the prison. No small part of this effort goes to Queenie as well. Oh, yeah. She's able to get the case out of Macusa. Queenie saved the day. Through her wiles and her charms. Mm -hmm. And her power as a legilimens is pretty strong. She's able to get them out of quite a few tough spots. Simultaneously, you are seeing the story of Graves. He goes to the orphanage to see Credence. Credence's powers manifest, and he kills Mary Lou. The Obscurial Mm. takes over. He escapes and starts to wreak havoc on the city. I love the way they depicted the Obscurios. Mm. Uh, It was very very dark. It was scary. You believed that it was wreaking this havoc. And there's definitely a metaphor for real human feelings and the way we revolt sometimes Mm. in life. If we hold things inside for too long, if we hold pain, if we hold anything like that, sometimes as humans we blow up and we do things that are way out of our nature, way out of our personality, and harm other people. So this is definitely a metaphor. Yeah, you can only suppress it for so long, right? And the more intense and powerful it is, the worse it's going to be when it finally breaks free, and that's what's happening with these kids. Now, we've gotten glimpses perhaps, of this type of darker nature of magic that's not understood or not harnessed correctly. Right. We know from Harry Potter that wizards don't really start to discover their power until they're about nine or ten years old. We've seen that repeatedly with the flashbacks to Lily and James Potter when they were younger. We saw it with Harry when he's being raised with the, snake. with the Dursleys and the powers would just come out at times. Yeah, with the snake, at but the also zoo. we hear stories from the book about a time at school when he was frightened and he was able to ride the winds up to the top of his school building. Oh, he yeah, didn't really yeah. know how he got there. And a little bit on the darker side, even though they make it seem funny, he blows up his aunt at one point and then has to run away from the household because... She's floating in air. He got upset with her, and he blew her up without meaning to. Right. And Hermione chastises him later when him and Ron are laughing about it. It's really not funny. You need to learn how to control that magic. It's something minor now, but that could turn dangerous mm-hmm. if you don't learn how to, to work with that magic. I also think we got the strongest glimpses of that when we get Voldemort's backstory, and we see him being raised at a sort of orphanage. He has realized that he has powers, even though he doesn't fully understand them, and he's using them to hurt people. Oh, yeah. And remember the scene where Dumbledore comes to get him, and he knows that he's hiding something, and the cupboard starts shaking? You could just see the wrath in the kid's eyes, where magic could turn deadly. (laughs) But I actually think that we've heard about a real case of an obscurial before, not just uncontrolled magic. And that was with Dumbledore's younger sister, Ariana. We hear talk about how he was trying to raise her as a child and she had an illness and they were trying to protect her from the outside world. I think that might have been what was going on with her. You might be right. You have this very sad story with Credence. He thinks that Graves is there to help him. Oh, yeah. And when Graves finally reveals that he could give a shit about him, this is when Credence gets upset. And really? Graves thinks he's after his sister, 
who's the powerful force, but he lets the obscurial loose and Graves realizes he's been mistaken this entire time and it's Credence that has the power. And Credence doesn't want to listen to him anymore. He decides he wants to let the magic run loose and take its course. He wants to hurt people in that moment. So before that happened, I felt like Newt almost had him on his side. He almost talked his way into him on his side. Well, yeah, this is even before that. Oh, that's right. When he's meeting with Graves, he lets the power run. Now he's causing damage in the city, and then he meets with Newt and Tina in the subway. That's right. And Newt, I think if they weren't interrupted, Mm. he would have been able to separate him and save his life. It was working Yeah. for a moment. He appealed to Credence. Credence didn't... He was like taming him, just like a beast. The way he spoke to him and the way he kind of massaged his way into Credence's area, Mm. you know? I think his next step would have been whatever he did to separate it the first time, Mm -hmm. and he would have been able to pull that out. Now, that one's stronger than normal, so I wonder if he would have been able to. Yeah, he said it was bigger than they'd ever seen. It Mm -hmm. really was tearing up the whole city, and also Credence was much older than any documented case of an obscurial. Once they get to a certain point... They normally die. They die if they're not separated because it is so strong and parasite-like. Yeah. But... You could see him calming. You could see almost the figure of Credence reforming at the center of mm-hmm. it. So I, I think, like you said, it was working. But, of course, the whole Macusa team shows up. Graves shows up, and he's actually now contributing and helping Newt's cause, trying to say, don't go after the kid. Like, he's right, and he, too, is trying to help Credence. Of course, he thinks he's more capable and he's gonna sort of step in here and talk right. credence down from the edge but he still doesn't want him killed he's with newt on that point well but his reasoning is he wants to use him of course yeah but the three of them maybe even together would have done a better job of it if they they're sort of teaming up in that moment you feel the energy starting to sway and then the mahusa team headed by serafina just Start firing. Yep. Yeah. And they kill him. They kill the Obscurial right along with Credence. And it's sort of jumped right over. It's very bizarre that a child died. Yeah. And we just breeze right past it. Yeah. It's overshadowed by the introduction of Gellert Grindelwald because the big reveal comes that that's who it is. You know, you see Johnny Depp now. That's right. And that's what I mean by kind of pulling you out. We see that Graves is, in fact, Gellert Grindelwald. Now, who knows what his real mission is in this moment? Like, why was he after Credence? Is this his hunt for the Deathly Hallows, and how did he think that was going to help in that search? Not really sure. Is he just after powerful dark magic, period? Mm-hmm. But the scene ends there. We don't really get to see anything further. They switch back over to our main storyline here where they need to obliviate everybody. The entire city has seen what's happened. They kind of think it's going to be impossible, but Newt steps in and says, well, hey, I've got this Thunderbird. (laughs) Maybe we can create a storm and obliviate everybody that way at one time. 
And and then they're able to fix things with their magic. One of my favorites, they can put the buildings back together real quick. Oh, All yes. stuff so magical. I wish we had that power. And Frank the Thunderbird, to the rescue, he decides it's okay to release him a little bit earlier than he planned. He's going to help him out. So how many times have the beasts, even though they've caused a lot of problems, also helped yeah. our magical heroes? So this works out for Newt because he can show firsthand that these creatures can be used for good. Absolutely. And I hope that people will listen to that plight afterwards. The I believe sad they did. I mean, they end up writing a book about it, a textbook. Yes, so. that children read, at least yeah. at Hogwarts. Um, the sad part about this is they're obliviating the entire city, and our group of four is standing within a subway platform, and they're looking at Jacob, and he's saying, I know this has to happen. Yeah. I got to walk out there. I have to get obliviated along with the rest of them. But it's heart-wrenching. Very much so. They're really all emotional about it. He's become one of the team. They don't want to say goodbye to him. But he says, I know I was never meant to see any of this. I'm not part of this world. As much as this has been great, I need to go back to my life in the Nomad world. He's kind of saying it to convince himself, not just them. Yes, partially. But I think that he also knows this isn't the time and place. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some part of him is hoping that someday he might come back to it. Yeah. But he allows it to happen. He walks out into the rain. That they part say was goodbye. very sad, yeah. It's a touching moment between him and Queenie, but also between him and Newt. They sort of thank each other. Very touching. We got to see there that Newt does care for humans. We knew he cared for beasts, but uh, this is the first time we see him really caring for a human. He was so awkward with other people, and I think Jacob's main gain, that the thing that he brought to this group was he was able to bring Newt out of his shell a little bit and have yeah. him interact with everybody else and become part of the, the foursome heroes, the unlikely yeah. heroes of the day. So he says goodbye. We go over to Newt, who says goodbye to Tina. He's getting back onto a ship to go home to England. They promise each other they'll see each other again. You see they want a kiss to happen. It's kind of awkward. Do they like each other? Do they not? But eventually he does get on the ship. You find out before he left, he anonymously left this case full of the silver eggs to Jacob so that he would be able to... Start his dream. Open his bakery. So he didn't forget about him. And the amazing last scene is seeing Jacob's bakery where he has <laughs> products that are shaped like the beasts he had met before. We said we're not sure he must remember on some level a little bit of his adventures. They do ask him, where do you, how do you come up with these creatures or these things? And he says, I don't know. I just They pop into my head or yeah, something? Yeah, something similar he to dreams that. about them? I yeah. don't remember. But yeah, then Queenie walks in. She gives him a huge smile and... It's not clear if he remembers her. It seems like there is some kind of spark of recognition, and you don't know if they're going to wind up getting together again. I think they will. Seems that way, but I thought that was a really nice I way to end it. I think she's really smitten of Jacob, and I think it's mm. been hard for her. So She I'm seems ho- lonely. She does. As much of an extrovert and a people person as she is, mm-hmm. like I say, she seems to relate more to no magis than magical people. Absolutely. So she really likes him. And to sum it up, I really enjoyed this movie. As you went over it again, 
unfortunately, because it's in the theaters, we can't watch it a few times. So I'm sure we've missed some things. But yeah. as you go over it again, I do realize there were so many key moments that I really enjoy and I have a vivid memory of it. And then, of course, when, whenever we talked about the bad guy, that's when I kind of started feeling that feeling of like, oh, uh, yeah. The confusion. So it's the bad guy. It comes down to that one narrative. That's where they fucked up. Well, the, yeah, the sideline story of Graves, who turns out to be Grindelwald, the ties to Macusa and the Magical Congress here in the U.S. The Darker Forces was a good storyline. It just didn't totally weave in with Newt's storyline of the Obscurial. And the intro to the second Salemers, who I'm assuming will become very important later, and they did well with that, but again, the tie-ins were more difficult. They had a lot to set up here for the future. I think they did a pretty good job doing it. While it did get a little rocky midway mm-hmm. through with the plot line, they wound up at a good place in the end. So that brings me to our overall rating for this movie. What would you give Fantastic Beasts? The ratings we're giving for this is going to be spells. Right. Graded on spells. We had Reveries for Westworld. We had... Ravens for GOT. Robots for Mr. Robot. Yeah. We couldn't come up with a good R one here. I'm going with 9.3 spells. Did you peek at my notes? No, I didn't. (laughs) But that's why we work so well together. We enjoy (laughs) the same things. Again, just to to reiterate, it brought me back to my childhood when we went to the movies. I ate a whole medium-sized popcorn (laughs) to myself. You didn't have any of it. Yeah. And I was giddy at some moments. And as soon as we heard the opening music... I was like, oh, shit, I got the tingles like a child. It was great. We mentioned on the bonus cast that we couldn't stop giggling to ourselves, whispering we were worse than the Mm 11-year-olds and that were a few rows behind us. I had my hot chocolate. I was wishing it was butterbeer. It wasn't Harry Potter, but it was the same universe. It was the thing we've been waiting for for so long. I also gave it a 9.3. I loved it. The... Slight drop is just due to everything that we've been speaking about, but I thought it was a great foundation for this five-part that we have now in store for us. You did 9.3 as well? I did. You have 9.9 in your... That was from my last... Oh, so no, I didn't see that. From Yeah, just so that you guys know, when I send my notes over to Jason, there's certain things I leave blank. My rating, my MVB, uh, some of the things I don't want each other to know about so yeah we did not know what each other's rating was going to be and that does bring me to mvb so yes we are using mvb again but instead of most valuable being christina came up with most valuable beast because i think that is more fun than doing characters yeah i think so i'll start great don't think i'm copying you so my mvb is a niffler even though he did not save the day or help in any way, he was definitely the comic relief in the film, and that's what we needed. We needed a funny beast. It would be unforgivable if none of the beasts were, you know, the funny things that we get from animated films, like Finding Nemo and all those. There's always that funny character, and that's what he served as. He did help, though, push the plot in many uh, sections of the movie. So that's how he did help. In second is Bo Truckle because he reminded me of Achilles. I am so happy you picked those two because I really loved both of them. But I said to myself, oh, I would 
bet that Jason's going to pick one of them, so I won't do that. <laughs> and so instead, I went with the Thunderbird. Oh, yeah. He was amazing, beautiful, a great view of this magical world. He was the impetus bet- behind, in large part, the journey that Newt was on in order to bring him to Amer- all of the part, America yeah. and set him free. He also helped along the way. He was our hero in the end to help obliviate everybody, and he did get set free, and hopefully he will be the thing that convinces the wizards that beasts are not that bad. So I like the Thunderbird as my MVB. Those birds are so majestic, and and when he's kind of snuggling up to Newt, again, it was Achilles, just reminding me. It was great. One of my favorite quotes from the movie was when Newt says, my philosophy is, if you worry, you suffer twice. I like that. That's true. It's so true. I have two last pieces of information. We talked about how this will now be a five-part movie series instead of a trilogy. And as of November, they said the next sequel is set to come out in 2018 and is already in pre-production. So movie two will be sometime next year, and it will take place in the UK and Paris. So the fact that it takes place in the UK and Paris, I'm starting to think maybe we won't get to know Macusa mm. and Serafina at all, because they're not going to be there. But I, it doesn't make sense if she's going through all the trouble of creating this whole world with, with a, st- a school, and we'll get to it, even their, her website, you become one of their school departments. Yes, I... I think, and this is just me totally speculating on this, I don't have any evidence, but I think that we will go back probably in three, maybe even four and five to North America, but I think here we're going to, for movie two, perhaps take a short trip back to the UK because that's where Newt went back to and see some of his tie-ins to the wizarding world that we know over there, and then maybe that'll bring it back to, to to he'll have to go see Tina at some point and they'll meet up and then they'll come back to North America. I'm assuming eventually we will see a younger Dumbledore. I hope so. We have to, this series has to end in that epic battle. Well, and he was partnered with Grindelwald. So the more we get of the backstory of Grindelwald, hopefully that will tie us in neatly to Dumbledore. And who knows, we might even get some of the backstory that we've been hoping for on Dumbledore's earlier life and things we didn't know about him. But either way, as I said, we will learn more about this other wizarding world. You do have the Magic in North America books by Rowling that are currently exclusively on Pottermore.com. So, of course, we had to take a venture into this world. It is surprising and crazy that as big of a fan as we have both been of the Harry Potter books, we actually never went on to Pottermore.com before now. I heard people talk about it. I don't know what stopped me. We finally went on and took a lovely magical journey. If you haven't been on there yet, it's definitely worth taking a little bit of time out. Make sure that you do have some time to play around on this, like a half an hour to an hour, Mm -hmm. because you're going to get involved and you're going to love it. It is huge. There's tons of information, but there's also lots of interactive pieces to it. If you can go on, you can register very easily just by putting in your name and your email address and confirming that. And you can set up a personal profile. So you can get sorted into your Hogwarts house, your Ilvermoney house, 
You can learn your Patronus and discover your wand. Very fun. Each one is an interactive journey, and then it also afterwards gives you background on what your particular sorting is and just about those things in general. So about wands and everything that goes into them, the backstory of it, you hear from Ollivander. It's just endless, the amount of stuff on there. And it's not like you answer just three questions and it randomly puts you in a house. It really feels like the algorithm they came up with, they ask you a lot of questions that lead you into the type of person you are and where you would actually fit or what kind of Patronus you would have. That's true. And each question tends to have a lot of different responses. Oh, yeah. Not just a few. And based on you and I both took the journey... And we each got some of the same questions, but a bunch that were different. So as you answer, like you say, it feels like the algorithm responds to that and starts to really try to personalize it. Yeah, definitely predicated on your previous responses. But real quick before, because I keep forgetting and I've been wanting to bring this up. The one thing I didn't understand, and we know that J.K. Rowling is really good with naming conventions and, and magical names that's half the fun. Mm-hmm. But why are her North American names actually harder to pronounce and the least American ever? I think that, as we noticed before, a lot of this is going to tie back into Native American folklore. And I'm not very knowledgeable about that. So I don't know if these add up to something there. But I do know that when you're sorted into a house, those things do go back like Thunderbird to Native American stories. Okay. You get a background where the colors and the patterns look Native American. I think that if we read more about it, and I intend to do so on Pottermore, about Ilvermoni in the North American magical world, that we could get some more of that information. And hopefully next time when we come back on with a follow-up, we will know more about that. We started out with sorting ourselves into our Hogwarts house. No surprise, I was sorted into Ravenclaw. I have never done this, but always assumed that's where I would be put. And there's going to be this underlining theme with you, and I won't reveal it till the end. That's pretty awesome, and I'm a little jealous. It went through everything. I couldn't believe it myself. But also, it just seemed to be pretty accurate, most of the things they did for both of us when you read more extensively about it. It wasn't with Ravenclaw just the intelligence, which if you read Harry Potter, that's mostly what I took from it. It was the fact that those people tend to be eccentric, a little bit of outsiders, kind of odd. Uh, So it did fit. everything about it was just very cool. And my house was Hufflepuff. And I was like, oh, that's so lame. I wanted to be like one of the main house. I want to be with Harry. (laughs) But it did make sense. Uh, Their traits are loyal, patient, fair, Hardworking and true. Mm. Yeah, immediately. I just wish it was something cooler than this little, what is he, a raccoon or something? A badger. Badger, yeah. <laughs> That's not fun and badass at yeah, all. Yeah, but the more you read about it, like you said, the more I think that each one actually is very true and makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Cedric Diggory's house, Nymphadora Tonks, Pomona Sprout. Yeah, it gives you famous people from each house. <laughs> you got to do it, uh, Clatchers. You got it. It's fun. There's so much information. Then you can share it with other people. You can read more about the stories. And then you can be sorted into your Ilvermoni house. My sorting for this was the Thunderbird. 
named by Chadwick Boot after his favorite magical beast. It is a creature that can create storms as it flies. Thunderbird House is sometimes considered to represent the soul of a witch or wizard. Ooh. You got soul, baby. <laughs> now that I'm looking at it again, you're right. It's very Native American, the style of your emblem mm-hmm. when you're in that house. The themes, the background. It kind of makes sense because North America was... Yeah. Huh. And I'm sure when we read about that, that's going to go a lot deeper. I was put into the Pukwudgie. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's, named by, it's named by James Stewart after the fiercely independent magical creature, the Pukwudgie. I gotta say it again. Pukwudgie House is sometimes <laughs> considered to represent the heart of a witch or wizard. It is also said that Pukwudgie favors healers. So you're the heart and I'm the soul. Yeah. That's amazing. How about that? We were meant for each other. <laughs> Next, probably my favorite part of the journey was creating your Patronus. Yes. Where you had to answer so questions fun. quickly, oh, like yeah. first response. If you're going to do this, please, they encourage you to put on headphones. It's much better with that because it goes back and forth. The visuals are very beautiful. Uh, It takes you on a journey. I won't ruin it in case you do go on this journey. I encourage you to do that. But eventually, as you answer, it develops what it thinks your Patronus should be. And each answer is going to take you in a different direction. So, Jason, yours came up kind of quickly and it got to your Patronus. Mine, it kept saying, we're not sure, answer another question, mm-hmm. this is difficult, your Patronus is going to be extremely rare. Yeah, you're special, we get it. No, <laughs> it was just a totally different experience for both yeah. of us, and I love that, because if it had been too similar and we'd wound up at the same result, yeah. you would say, would this, oh, this is, is a cheap lame. algorithm, yeah. it's very easy, you get one or the other. Uh, it reinforced the fact that you were getting an individual experience. So mine came up with a Granian winged horse. So cool looking. It looks badass, man. Yeah, so it doesn't tell you anything specifically about your Patronus and what it means, but it does tell you about the Patronus charm in general. And I got a dragon. (laughs) No, I didn't. I got another puny thing. I got a bloodhound. Oh, but he looks so cute. I love him. He looks so friendly and... Your theme is starting to run throughout also. The creature matches your house, which are both trustworthy, loyal, kind, affectionate. It's the same types of characteristics and the same for mine as well. So here I'll tell you, I started to notice this theme that I was getting all birds. I was in Ravenclaw for my first house, Thunderbird for my second house. My Patronus is a grainy and winged horse. That flies around. Um, And the themes were more about sort of independence and a different eccentricity, uh, kind of like loners, which for me fits very well. And the final part of this experience was to discover your wand. Let's start with my wand. I got a vine wood with a dragon heartstring cord, uh, 11 and 3 fourths inches in length and slightly yielding flexibility. Now, what's cool is I finally got... A dragon something, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, I guess I wouldn't be a badass wizard. I'd be more of like a Weasley. Yeah. Who cares about the vine? But the dragon, as a rule, dragon heartstring produce wands with the most power. 
and which are capable of the most flamboyant spells. So I'm going to have some really cool-looking spells, dude. Mm. Dragon wands tend to learn more quickly than other types. While they can change allegiance if one from their original master, they always bond strongly with the current owner. The dragon wand tends to be easiest to turn to the dark arts. Uh-oh. Though it will not incline that way if it's on its own accord. It is also the most prone of the three cores to accidents, being somewhat temperamental. Jeez. All right. <laughs> well, they also tell you about the length. So most wands range between 9 and 14 inches. Um, under and over are more rare and denote something about the character of the wizard. So again, I'm right in the middle. You're right in the middle. Normal nobody. My, mine was 10 <laughs> inches, which is slightly shorter. And I also got unyielding flexibility. Well, that denotes something about character, but... Well, unyielding means like it, it's not flexible it at all. It doesn't bend. It's not flexible oh. at all. See, flexibility uh, denotes, or rigidity denotes the degree of adaptability, mm-hmm. willingness to change. Exactly. That's, real, that's why you always win arguments, because I just go, all right, and you're, you are just unwilling to change. That's ever. a better trait than mine, <laughs> certainly. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm slightly yielding flexibility, so I'll change a little bit. Yeah, that's that's not that flexible. Um, yeah. I got a hazelwood with phoenix feather core, 10 inches in length and unyielding flexibility. What was cool about the hazelwood is it's said to reflect its owner's emotional state and works best for a master who can understand and manage their own feelings. Huh. The wand will absorb energy and discharge it unpredictably. So an owner that's not familiar, like if you tried to take my wand, you would have great difficulty managing it. Nice. The positive aspects is that it more than makes up for minor discomforts. It's capable of outstanding magic in the hands of a skillful and devoted owner. It is so devoted to the person it bonds with that it often wilts, or that is, dies at the end of its master's life. So it really firmly bonds to it. And then the phoenix feather is the rarest... Another bird, by the way. Right, and also Mm -hmm. another rare, the rarest core type. The phoenix feathers are capable of the greatest range of magic, though they take longer than unicorn or dragon core to reveal them. So it takes a while to bond to it. They show the most initiative, sometimes acting of their own accord, a quality that many witches and wizards do not like. They are always the pickiest when it comes to their owners, for the creature which they are taken from is one of the most independent and detached in the world. So they are the hardest to tame and personalize. Their allegiance is hard won. And I believe, wasn't Harry's wand a phoenix feather core? So. yeah. Which was, you know, him and Voldemort plucked mm-hmm. from the same phoenix. Well, uh, I, <clears throat> we might be wrong on that. I'm pretty sure that they said the, the phoenix that gave their cores only discharged two, two feathers and Harry got one and Voldemort's wand had the other. Okay. So it was another way that they were intricately linked. So you could see there's just tons of cool information that yeah. only just scratches the surface and that is the personalized area of this page. There's also the main area where you can see writing by J.K. Rowling. You can explore the main stories. You can explore Fantastic Beasts and Cursed Child and then you can also get featured and news stuff as well as the shop. I didn't go over the vine of mine, but it's actually kind of badass. Oh, yeah? They're less common and have been intrigued to notice that their owners are nearly always those witches or wizards who seek a greater purpose. 
who have a vision beyond the ordinary and who frequently astound those who think they know them best. Hmm. Fine wines seem strongly attracted by personalities with hidden depths, and I have found them more sensitive than any other when it comes to the instantly detecting uh, a prospective match. Very cool. So I'm kind of cool, too. Damn it. Even though I'm a badger and a bloodhound. Right, so that's everything we have to talk about for this fantastic beast. As we mentioned, there will be five now. Rowling said that as she started to develop the story arc, that made more sense than three. We believe that David Yates, who directed this one and also half the Harry Potter movies, will be back for the next movie and probably all the rest of them as well. They don't have a title for the next sequel that's set to come out in 2018, but Eddie Redmayne has revealed that the sequels will keep the Fantastic Beasts and then have the different subheadings. Oh, nice. Okay. Good. We'll get to see some more beasts in action. I'm really excited and happy that we're again in this universe. Absolutely. The sequel is already scheduled to hit November 2018. The third film is planned for November 2020. And if you follow that same pattern, you would get 2022 and 2024 for the following. That's if they stick to it, although we can't really be sure. I'm sure they will. Hopefully we'll still have a podcast by then. And as far as the people that are in it, we assume Eddie Redmayne will continue through all of these. We know that Johnny Depp and Zoe Kravitz are scheduled to return. And Dan Fogler has said his original contract was for three films with a chance of four. Also, that Rowling confirmed Alison Sudol, who plays Queenie, will return for the next movie. So that's everything we know about the future of Fantastic Beasts. Hopefully there will be four more of these podcasts in the years to come in the future. We want to thank our Patreon members who have subscribed to this level. I hope we made it your worthwhile. Movies are a little more difficult. You can only watch them once if they're in the theaters, and there's a lot to cover and keep it interesting. And I think we did that. We didn't take notes while we were there. Of course not. We just had the experience, and we're going to try to continue doing that in the future so we can really absorb it, and then we come back later and do our research. So if there's anything you want to tell us, comments about how this went, suggestions for the future, please feel free to write in. And we are not sure what the next movie is going to be. That would be for January is our next movie review. We'll take a look, keep an eye out on what's supposed to hit and what looks good for then. Uh, Again, if you have any recommendations, please let us know. And when we finally decide upon what that is, we will put that on Patreon so you can see what we have in store for you. Oh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. We want to again thank our sponsor, Third Wave Water. A sponsor whose product is a perfect accompaniment for the Coffee Clutch crew. When you're sitting around talking about movies, listening to our podcast, and you need the perfect cup of coffee. So definitely check it out and remember to use the promotional code CLATCH, K-L-A-T-C-H, for 10% off your first order. Thirdwavewater.com. The secret is in the water. Until next month, this round's on me. This round is on me! Try again.